Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you This is the final word of your globe-trotting cricket podcast coming to you from the coastal South African town of Port Elizabeth. Jeff Lemon with you. Later in the program, we will be talking about the Durban test that's just passed, the Port Elizabeth test to come. But to start it off, we have to talk about David Warner. Warner has just accepted a level two reprimand from the ICC, which will give him three demerit points, but won't see him suspended for blowing up with South African player Quentin de Kock as they left the field at T in the Durban test match. We've just spoken to David Warner at his first public statement since all of that occurred. He's given his side of the story and we'll run those answers for you a little bit later in the show. But Adam Collins is with me and it's really unfortunate that we're talking about this instead of talking about the cricket as has been the case for the last couple of days. Yeah, I wish this was going to be the final word uh, when David Warner's comments today. I suspect it's not going to be the case. Uh, Team South Africa have rejected the sanction that was uh, given to Quinton de Kock. He only received a level one and one demerit point. I thought just cop it on the chin. I'm really surprised they're pushing back so hard. They're rejecting what Warner's saying. Warner's been the first one to actually just say it outright. His wife was targeted when they were walking off the field. That was the catalyst for what came next. Uh, the South Africans aren't, aren't willing to accept that version of events. Their coach showed us Gibson's been out there today uh, saying there wasn't any personal comments made, despite the fact that Fafty Plessis immediately after it happened accepted that there was. So it's all over the place. I suspect this has got some way to run yet, regrettably, as you say, Jeff, because it was a fine test match at Durban and I wish we were talking about that first not last yes but unfortunately we have to follow the stories of the day as they come it was a pretty bad tempered test match in a lot of ways there were a couple of spiteful sessions out there where the Australians were bowling there was certainly a lot of chatter as they like to call it going Mm. on in the field we were both able to hear quite a bit of this through the commentary earphones from the stump microphones Mm. it, it didn't seem to be really incendiary stuff but there was certainly a lot of tension going on and as they came off the field for tea it boiled over so I'm sure everybody listening knows the the rough outline of the story but there it is in case you've been living under a rock for the last few days. Yeah that's right it was certainly building through that middle session I like the response of several past players including Simon Kadic who said that traditionally umpires have had a bigger role to play in this it didn't seem to me as though the umpires were particularly interventionalist in that middle session it was bubbling away there was the run out of AB de Villiers where Warner fit fired up big time and gave that very emotional response to running him out and gave Markram a massive spray on the way through. At the time, I didn't really read much into that. I thought, you know, 
Markram had run out to Villiers, he was giving him a bake, he was excited, he was carrying on, he was saying something like, look what you've done, look what you've done. Mm. But you, you overlay that with the context of what was clearly going on, which, which we learnt later. There was the Nathan Lyon incident, which he also copped a whack for, dropping the ball next to the Villiers' head, and, and bundled up together. Clearly they were at each other. Then what happened in the stairwell... It, for mine, the biggest, uh, the saddest, if you like, part of all of this is that it's coming in the same week where the ICC are putting a lot of effort into supporting Red Bull cricket, Test Match cricket, in the way they're, they're trying to decouple the relationship with 2020 domestic competitions. They want to see uh, this format of the game flourish in perpetuity. They're doing all they can to try and set up the framework for that, and yet after a great Test Match, well, maybe not a great Test Match, but a very good Test Match, a splendid uh, some splendid personal displays. Uh, we're not talking about that. Instead, we're talking about the off-field stuff for the umpteenth time. Yeah, exactly. And what struck me is there's been a, a huge amount of negative feedback on the Australian team in Australia itself. Mm. There is around the world as well, of course. You know, the English love hopping in and, and uh, various other countries. But there's certainly been a lot of negative stuff from back home saying that this is the old sort of ugly Australian cricket team of the early 2000s, which, which got so much sort of negative response from its own supposed supporters. They've, there's certainly been a lot of attack of David Warner. Oh, this is just the kind of you know, thug that he is on the field and all this kind of talk. And... It strikes me how how vague that that line is between you know what's considered to be acceptable and unacceptable on the field and and when I saw David Warner blow up after that run out and and sort of scream randomly into the sky I thought I just thought it's it's gone that little bit too far over and people will will dislike it they'll think it's ugly and I reckon that sort of created the preconditions then for what happened next mm. and and how people have perceived that 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 this is the ugly old Australian ungracious winning way coming back oh they're certainly linked the two together there's quite a bit to unpack from what you said then but let's just drill down to begin with on uh, the idea that this Australian side are, are the old you know, ugly Aussies if you like that was a massive problem for Cricket Australia a generation ago uh, they put a lot of work into making sure that their brand evolved over time I know that Smith's very aware of it acutely aware of how his side's being perceived back in Australia at the moment uh, it is a tough balance to strike because historically, and certainly this side, we asked Smith about it in the post-match press conference on day five, and he pretty much said that he's okay with the tag because he knows that when they're playing aggressive cricket, as he used the term, hunting like a pack, that they win. And there's always been this perception. Our colleague and friend Sam Perry from The Great Cricketer made the point that whilst the Australian team always uh, defaults to the position that aggressive equals successful, that this will continue to be the way. Which is why I, I'm, I'm drawn to the idea that we mentioned Kadic before. I'm drawn to the idea of umpires playing a, a greater role at the time to make sure um, that these things don't get out of hand. As for just the ferocity of the response, I don't think I can't really remember a, a time, certainly not under Smith, m- my thinking it's been at least a decade since it's been this ferocious uh, the, the, the commentary around David Warner has been unbelievable and it's really tapped into something else which is, I think is worth discussing as well it's that David Warner because he had that response to AB de Villiers apparently therefore it's okay for Warner's wife to have been attacked and apparently it means that Warner can't raise it I read this imbecilic column in the New Daily overnight where a writer said that because David Warner raised that his wife had been a point of focus that people should go off or could go off and Google uh, his wife and her previous boyfriends I'm like come on 
on. Where is how does this become acceptable to shame uh, David Warner's wife, and why is that okay? Why is it would it be okay if it were another player's wife, or is it just okay because it's David Warner and he's got a high-profile former athlete as a partner? Or I, I think it's more a generalised discrimination that it's just okay because we're talking about a woman um, and and women of fair game. You know, women who've had previous relationships should be attacked for it, whereas mm. men who've had previous relationships are celebrated for it as some kind of masculine ideal. Um, it's a, a very old entrenched sexism and, and sadly this kind of demonstrates that it's not going away you know why does Candace Felsen have to be the point of focus in any way I think it's a disgrace I, I really do I think there's something seriously amiss there and it would be easy to listen to us now I think you know we had David on the show last week and as a consequence we're trying to stick up for him that's that's really not the case as far as I see it Warner made a massive blue on Sunday he could have gone for it they could have suspended him for a game and, and I wouldn't have balked I would have thought that that's a piece of behaviour deserving of intense scrutiny uh, I just think that there's shades of grey the way that people have reduced this back to is Warner right um, to have stuck up for his wife versus is Warner a scumbag I mean you know how often in life how often in conflict is it as clear as that and I think that it's important that we're able to understand that much like David Warner as an individual generally speaking and, and we spoke about this after our interview with him last week Warner is a complicated individual lots of things about him are true it is true that he's trying to better himself it is true that he's been typically quieter on the field for the couple of years after the summer of 14-15 it is true that he started for whatever reason playing a more aggressive role this summer and certainly at Durban last week but it doesn't mean that we can't he can't be all of those things so what we've got from the south africans here is competing narratives there seems to broadly be an acceptance that quentin de Kock said something particularly objectionable uh, they didn't initially dispute that fafta Plessis didn't dispute that after the match but then what came along a little bit later was was a, an addition to the earlier story that said oh well it was only because warner had said something similar to him and that he was therefore responding to that and therefore it was fine uh, that's the bit that seems a bit convenient to me where the CCTV video footage got leaked by somebody uh, safe to say it didn't get leaked by the Australian camp from the players area yeah. from an area which wouldn't have access to the media we know from the we, there's no way we get that it'll be really clear this is not television footage this no, is private footage this is security footage mm. which only the ground authority has access to so somebody was able to get the ground authority to show them the footage and to get a copy of the footage and then to provide it to uh, local South African media outlets that all happened within a couple of hours of stumps on the fourth day which is something that I can say with some surety. There's a level of convenience to what was uh, slotted in about what Warner apparently said, which therefore made it not de Kock's fault in, in the view of some of the South African spin of this series. So how do we untangle that? Is it worth untangling that? I think the timeline is important. I think that people need to be held to account. I think it's important that Jeff Crow, the match referee, goes through this process. In some respects, I'm kind of glad that de Kock is challenging uh, the charge that was put to him. So there will be sort of an official record of what went down. But the point is, is we, we can't continue to just simply think that this is okay. We can't let our form of the game uh, be diminished. We can't let international cricket sides be viewed through this prism. We need to collaborate to make sure that our form of the game has the best chance of success. We love test cricket. We love the characters, we love the stories, we love the challenge, we love the aggression, we love the byplate. None of that is, is stuff we're trying to withdraw from the sport. But have we reached a stage where um, sides, especially in big series, feel as though this is necessary? If they've arrived at that conclusion, then we definitely need intervention from the authorities because we can't afford this. If we feel as though cricket is going to continue to live and prosper in this form and it hasn't got risks and hasn't got danger warning signs all the time, then we're bloody kidding ourselves. A point I made in a piece I wrote for the ABC a few days ago, it's hypocritical in a way to 
enjoy the extreme level of tension that happens on the field when sides are really going for it and then clutch our handkerchiefs when things bump up just a notch or two above that, which it's almost inevitable that that's going to happen. When things are heated to a certain degree, there will be blow-ups at some point. Yeah, and I feel like I'm banging on about the umpires here a little bit too much, and I sort of feel sorry for umpires Ravi and Dharma saying that they've really come into scrutiny here, but like these guys have played international cricket or high levels of domestic cricket. They know the deal. They know where the figurative line is as well as anyone involved in the game. They're dispassionately, uh, well, they're, they're employed to dispassionately adjudicate the, the laws and the, and, the, and the playing conditions as, as, as set by the MCC and the ICC. They can see when something's going on. They can bring the captain to one side and say, in that case, Steve... It's pretty clear this is going to boil over. We've played enough cricket and officiated enough cricket to see that. Pull your bloody head in and make sure your team's looked after. I'm sympathetic to the view that captains run the teams and umpires run the game, but I can't see why they can't work better together to make sure that situations like this don't take place. Because I'm totally sympathetic to the idea of what you said, Jeff, that, that this is, you know, and the captains both said it. Smith and Duplessis both said, you know, they used the old red, red-blooded man argument. I think that's kind of, you know, that, that, that's a bit overdone. But there is some truth to that. There is some truth to the idea that when you're given a... a when you're at a crossroads in a game of sport or a game of cricket between doing the right thing by winning and the right thing by uh, how pleasant a game it is to watch, you're almost certainly going to go with the former. I know that having played plenty of club and park cricket, I know the way I've behaved on the cricket field from time to time has been disgraceful. And I know that. I know the way I've carried on in the field is not the way I want to conduct myself in my life. And I know I've been told off many a time by a captain or an umpire for doing exactly that. I don't know why at the top level you need to be more or less attacking someone mm-hmm. before anything actually happens. Yeah. Or, or it's like, I'd rather see, if you like, prevention rather than correction. I want to see it dealt with then and there rather than worrying about what Jeff Crow, the match referee, might say at stumps. You know, let, let, let's change the way we think about these things just a little bit and see if we can do a better job. We spoke to David Warner just a couple of hours ago. He was pretty forthright on most of it, particularly that he accepted responsibility for overreacting, as he said, and that he should have handled himself better. But he didn't accept that Quentin de Kock was innocent in any way, and he was pretty forceful about uh, his thoughts on the South African response. Find personal. Well, I've always thought that now when it comes to family or racism comments or anything like that, that's a, just a no-go zone. And now personally... Oh, I've been caught everything under the sun out in the field and that, you know, quite frankly doesn't bother me and each individual is different, of course um, but if we're going to jot down everything that's in that sort of spectrum the other day was I felt was probably out of line and as I said, I regretted the way it played out but I'll always stick up for my family I think you guys are well aware of the cop it left, right and centre especially off the field from, from spectators and, and I'm used to that and that doesn't bother me but in a proximity of probably my personal space and from behind me a comment you know that was vile and disgusting about my wife and just in general about a, a lady was quite poor I felt. The fact that footage got leaked so quickly that night how do you think that happened? That's up to the ICC it's a PMOA area so I don't know how that got leaked or let out so that's not up to me to comment. Did you say what they said you said? Well it, it is quite disappointing that they would come out and, and make that that statement. I was actually taken back by what was accused and yeah, I, I think it's absolutely frivolous. No, not at all. I just would, would have liked him to actually say the comment a little bit louder instead of just muttering it under his breath next to me and, and Tim Payne and, and then walking up the stairs and saying I didn't say anything as soon as he's, you know, the rest of his team that came out. We're all men and if you're going to say something, you look at someone in the eye and, and, and say it. That was Australian opening batsman David Warner there and let's just hear briefly from Australian wicketkeeper Tim Payne. At the time when it was actually said, I think I was probably the only person that heard it. 
Usman had sort of gone a bit further ahead, and I was actually walking. I was about to walk around them both. Uh, I just thought they were still going on from just the general sort of chatter that was on the ground. Um, and as I went past to cock, he said what he said, and um, yeah, luckily I suppose I was there in between. Uh, at no stage was was Clinton's family um, mentioned. That's 100% false. That that's been brought up. I don't know how their team manager can hear from where he's sitting, but um, from where I was, which was you know right in the heat of it, um, the whole time there was nothing um, that we said that was that was inappropriate. Yeah, um, yeah, it's extremely disappointing. I know. Obviously, the, the situation wasn't ideal for, for both sides and uh, it was regrettable what happened. But, yeah, it's, just, it's disappointing that um, they've come out now and said a few things that, that are just blatantly untrue. So it's forceful, clear stuff from the Australians saying that they didn't cross the line, quote-unquote. That's the grey area. That's the one thing that Otis Gibson said earlier today that I would agree with, which is who decides where the line is. Um, we hear a lot of talk about the line, but what is it? Where is it? I reckon that's a pretty I, nebulous concept. Yeah, I reckon they know. I, I think that most cricketers have. Uh, it's it's like an unspoken thing. You know when it's gone too far. Invariably, you know when you've said something which is too much because the response of your teammates isn't to back you in; it's to look the other way. I think that, that there's an acceptance there. Uh, my I found those Tim Payne comments quite interesting yesterday. He was the one witness to the incident, according to what Warner has said, that he was in close enough proximity to hear what went down. I don't know if Tim Payne's capable of lying. Uh, it doesn't strike me as that kind of character. Admittedly, uh, we're seeing him through the prism of, of you know, the, the carefully constructed brand that I'm sure he has as well as a professional sportsman. But my read on that is if Tim Payne's saying that the cock said something, um, I'm willing to back the fact that that's an accurate portrayal of what went down. I think it's very risky business from DeCock uh, challenging this on the basis that he could be looked... Well, look, you wouldn't want to have another camera angle and there's already been three or four out there. They wouldn't want to be some other angle out there which proves that he said it after he's now refuted. Arrested Development Narrator Voice. There was another camera angle about an hour after we recorded this podcast. That could leave DeCock in a fair bit of strife as well. Doing this match on radio commentary, I heard a lot mm. of Tim Payne in the headphones, mm. more than anybody else, obviously. He was very vocal, but he was only vocal towards his bowlers and his fielders. There was a lot of encouragement. There was a lot of sort of mundane, you know, nice Garys and well-bowled and all the rest of it. I didn't hear him say anything to the batsman. I didn't hear him say anything aggressive. So in terms of being maybe a, a slightly cleaner-cut character out there in the middle, he's probably the one that I would believe most, um, just just on that basis of, of not necessarily being a player who dips into that sort of aggression himself. Oh, look, he's a grown-up, isn't he? He's, he's been around this game for a very long time. He, he knows the drill. He's 32 years old. He's been a professional for, gee, he must be going on 12 or 13 years now. So uh, there is something to be said for that. He isn't sort of just came along in the in the last round of uh, rookie contracts. This is a guy who's been around the national setup for a very long time. So, again, he's not the only source of information here, and, and DeCock deserves to be given procedural justice, as, he, as he's elected to do, by taking it to the match referee and contesting his charge. But how much better would have this been had Warner popped his head up on the day, and DeCock as well, uh, answered questions. On the, on the fifth day of the yeah, match. I, I mean, uh, I, yeah, I, I understand. The story broke that morning where sure. South Africa was already going to lose. They were nine wickets down overnight, and... <laughs> And it was kind of convenient that uh, on day five, no one was talking about how Australia had dominated in the yeah. test, but we were all talking about uh, who had said what to who. 
had he been willing to have done that, had they been willing to have put him up and had South Africa been willing to have let de Kock do that, uh, do his uh, necessary commentary as well, this would have still knocked onto the match referee. I have no doubt about that. There still would have been sanctions. But at least we at least would have got their definitive first-hand accounts on the day rather than having this drag out. What are we now? Three days later? Yeah. It seems ridiculous. And, and the sanctions might have been less had Warner stood up and said, look, I have reacted, I'm sorry, and had de Kock stood up and said, oh, look, I hate at the moment. I said a really terrible thing. I regret it and I'm sorry about there, that. There is something to be said for, and I, you know, I say this, I used to say this in politics all the time, a little bit of candour and a little bit of contrition goes such a long way. The underlying theme in all of this is that there is a lot of focus on Australia as a cricket team on their behaviour. They're starting from a lot further back than anyone else in terms of their their PR strategy in terms of their public perception. You know, they've got a handicap. Oh, I absolutely agree. I remember a couple of years ago when Smith first became captain, his first home summer as the full-time captain. So that would have been 15-16 at the Wacker. Ross Taylor makes 290. He's walking off the ground and due to the fact that it was change of innings when his wicket fell, they ran off the field. Oh, yeah, they were, they were celebrating the catch, right? That's right. Deep he held out to deep mid-wicket. The sub took a catch or something yeah, and they all ran spot over spot on. And as a consequence yeah. of that, Dirk Nannis went on air and, and barreled him. He, he, I can't remember his exact wording, but he described it as, you know, pretty much same old Australian cricket team, unable to be gracious. And Steve Smith was fuming. And I, I sort of felt his annoyance at the time. And, and he expressed that to Dirk uh, when they had a chance to have a conversation on air the following day. And Dirk's critique was that, yep, I take your point of view. This is a one-off and I get the broader um, uh, the broader yep. atmospherics around it. But you're, gotta, not, you're not responsible for what's happened in the past. But... but there is a past, yeah. and 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 if you like, if the if the baggy green uh, does sort of bestow special powers on players and yeah. the idea, yeah. all the rest of it, um, it, it 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 also extends to the way they're perceived for what happened 15 years ago. I know for a fact just how much brand damage it. Cricket Australia suffered uh, in the early 2000s. There were extensive reports written about making sure that they improved their reputation and I'm sure that Steve Smith will feel sore about this because I've never seen an Australian cricket team under him so far quite the bashing they have in the last couple of days. It takes so little uh, for the flick to be switched to make people believe that they're a bunch of dreadful human beings and I think they've got to be very mindful of that. It's as though they need to take more an attitude of, and you know, this won't be, they won't do this by the way, but remember when Brendan McCullum uh, went on the the charm offensive a couple of years ago and they went out of the way to talk about what great blokes they were and they made a point of saying they were the anti-sledging team. Now, obviously, Smith has a strong view that that's not when they play their best cricket, but it would literally take that kind of um, 180 degree turnaround yeah. to change the perceptions about them. There's very little they can do about it, but they have to be mindful of it as well. But even then, they could do that for 10 years and then literally the first day that an Australian player told someone to go F-bomb themselves or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Everyone would say, "Oh, it was all a ruse." Same old Australian team. Yeah, you know they're they're back to the beginning. Well, it's like Warner. A couple, we we actually asked him this question. I think when we interviewed him, that he, he spoke so much about being the, the Reverend, and he made that comment about about war, and all of a sudden it was, "Ah, oh, you're a fraud, David Warner." Everything you said's been nonsense for the yeah. last couple of years. This will probably not be the final word on David Warner, but it will be nope. our final word <laughs> on David Warner here uh, on the final word. I'm Daniel Dawkins, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word, and enough about fights and controversy. Let's do the thing that we're supposed to do and talk about Test Match Cricket. The first test in Durban, Australia coming over to South Africa, a ridiculous record since uh, readmission in the early 90s. They've won the first test six times out of seven Mm. when visiting South African shores, which is 
frankly absurd in a, a climate where apparently no one is supposed to win away from home. We talked last week about it being the counterfactual this series and it could have easily gone that way again. If you said to us a week ago that in the first Australian innings there'd be no partnership greater than 60, you think after winning the toss and batting first, you think they were in a fair bit of trouble. But they managed to just not have that collapse. Batting not as well as they perhaps have in the, in the home summer. They still managed to find a way and navigate a way to 351, namely through Mitchell Marsh. I mean, how I said to you, especially, Jeff, a few months ago, <laughs> that Mitch Marsh would be the backbone of an Australian innings with wickets falling around him on a consistent basis. You would have had me committed. Yeah, I uh, would have been looking around for a smiling cat and a, a weird caterpillar <laughs> on a giant mushroom. But, but instead, that's really the, that's the player he's, he's quickly evolving into. For yeah. mine, this was coming-of-age stuff. You know, Perth, great, brilliant, phenomenal innings. Sydney... He couldn't have done much more in Sydney apart from the way he made his 100 in yeah. quite an uh, amusing way. But, but in terms of the actual innings itself, he batted really nicely as well. But this meant a lot more to me. Yeah, and, and it's not true that those 100s were easy. But if you're a critic, you could easily say, oh, well, 100s at home, home conditions, you know, England were a beaten side. Mm. None of that's actually really true. It was horribly difficult conditions in Sydney where it was 55 degrees and, um, and it wasn't the easiest track to play on in Perth where there was a, a fair bit of zing in that pitch as well. But... Nonetheless, you could you could write off those previous innings if you wanted to be a critic. This was a one that really wasn't impeachable. It was against a top quality bowling mm. attack. It was on a difficult surface where no one was ever in. Where Smith and Warner both got to fifty and then immediately got out because you just weren't guaranteed to really be into a groove. Uh, and he managed to subvert that by sheer patience and just crease occupation for a long, long period of time, was not out overnight, came back the next day, did the same thing again, built up, and then finally later in the innings, as as Wicket started to fall at the other end, he hit out a bit and, and went pretty swiftly from about 60 to near 100, and the only bad shot he played in the innings was the one that got him out on 96. Yeah, you talk about the pressure of the 90s, you can't imagine he would have played a shot like that on 86 or 76 or 66, but there you go. I, I have this distinct memory of 12 months ago in Bangalore, it's actually 12 months ago to the day I think that test match finished uh, that's weird for me to remember that but I'm, I'm 90% sure the test match finished on the 7th of uh, March last year in Bangalore he trot off the field um, that afternoon after being so close to playing the innings that could have secured Australia the Border Gavaska Trophy I know they lost by 70 odd runs but on the way to tee on that fourth day chasing down 180 odd those two were on he got himself out likewise uh, did Matthew Wade before the tee break and they lost 6 for 11 and, and, and kind of that was it he was on the next plane home with a bung shoulder the reconstruction, all the rest. We know the full story behind his rehabilitation. And, mm-hmm. and, but you know, at that time, the headlines he arrived home to were Mitchell Marsh, the least effective number six in the history of Test cricket. He was literally the worst player. Literally the worst player. And, and that's you know, you know, I felt for him because the amount of times he's been asked to come out and bat at four for a million, or, or you know, and, and make quick runs in the second innings, definitely. Or, or didn't at help. four for twenty. Or four <laughs> for twenty, you know. indeed. That's right as well. But still, it, you know, the, the numbers themselves provided an easy headline, and I'm just thrilled for him. He's clearly a very popular member of the side. Simon Kadich, who, you know, is an authority on all things West Australian cricket. He's seen Marsh's development from the outset. He sees him as a potential future Australian captain. I was slightly surprised by that comment, but the more I delve into it, it does make some sense. He's of the right age. Smith won't captain forever. He's as good a chance as anyone else, especially given that Warner's been in strife again this week. Yeah, well, you'd, you'd think that Warner would have uh, wound back his slim opportunity of becoming a test captain. I reckon he'll he'll be in a Shane Warne mould probably for the rest of his career, one of those players who could have done it but wasn't trusted. Mm. And, you know, 
Maybe justifiably so. I hope he's not listening. Um. <laughs> and, and, if, and, and even if he is, I think that he would accept that it's harder for him now to be the test captain due to what's happened this week. The white ball captaincy, I think, still within his grasp if, if, uh, if Smith wanted to shed that at some stage. You but, just but, get less angry in limited overs cricket, don't you? Like it's just, There's less intensity. People playing T20s seem to mostly be having fun. Yeah. But Mitch Marsh had another breakthrough, not just with his innings, but also he finally took a wicket. At on, last. On his, on his, uh, his first since his comeback in yeah. Perth. And what a wicket too, Aidan Markram. I mean, talk about a bloke being set. Smashed on the head, smashed on the arm, nearly a broken arm. The ball after that, he was still hooking Pat Cummins. Uh, it was it was an admirable innings, beautiful through the covers. 43 and just, just caned it. I, I mean, not from the word go. You know, he came in, consolidated, saw a collapse to four for 49 at the ran, other ran end. Ran out. I mean, ran out. <laughs> maybe the best batsman in the world. And then wasn't rattled and said, oh, well, it's fine. What is he, 23 years old? Yep. He's played half a dozen test matches. He's went, no, no, it's cool. I've got this, guys. I'm just going to make a massive hundred and give us a really genuine chance of chasing down 400 in the fourth innings of a test. Yeah, I was on air when they were going at about six and over uh, in that after fight, tea. After tea. They yeah. were really ticking the board over, scoring at least a boundary and over. And that just gave you pause for thought. You're like, ooh, 160-odd to win, is it now? Yeah. You start to have that conversation. 417, do you say? So yep. one short of the all time record. Ooh, you know, you start to have those thoughts when DeCock was batting so impressively with Markram, but it was Mitch Marsh that got the breakthrough. Tim Payne, we mentioned him before in the context of the Warner spat, but that take up to the stumps considerably harder than it looks. He spoke about it yesterday, about the technical work he's been doing outside the off stump to right-handers in making sure that he brings his head all the way over instead of keeping his head behind the stumps. So it's something that he's been uh, aware of. And, and again, like it must be so rewarding for a wicketkeeper having it pay off so magnificently in such a clutch moment in the game. And having the confidence to come up to the wicket and, and then to pull it off. Uh, it, it was one of those moments where you knew that's it. I mean, there was that... that that expectation of possibility building because the runs required, you know, dropped under 200, then it dropped under 150, we were mm. down to 140 odd. You're thinking, oh, if they get through the stumps, they need 100 to win, they come back tomorrow. Entirely possible. As soon as that wicket went, it was like, this is over. And it was over because Mitchell Stark came on and did the thing that he does, the thing that he did in the first innings where he took five for 34. He came back and ran through, took three wickets in and over to just obliterate the tail. Triple wicket maiden, uh, three wickets in five balls, as you do. He did it in the first innings. Uh, late on Friday on the Sunday there was probably an argument for them going off for light after a couple of those wickets but they, they stuck it out uh, and that gave Stark enough time to take but the interesting thing is he took so many wickets in and over that within and over it went from the light being acceptable to being unacceptable <laughs> because it took that long that to get, and I tell you what the, the batsmen coming in were not rushing they were close to being timed out everyone because they were dawdling they were trying to extend the time out they were checking the pads on the boundary line they were creeping to the middle understandably Just, the know. bloke's reverse swinging at a foot and he yeah. was like it's no exaggeration to say that some of those balls were hooping as much as you, you know you jump you go on an old YouTube deep dive on Waka and Wasim as I do about once every two weeks and you end up watching um, them bowl against England and you, you watch the way they were able to destroy England that summer in the early 90s and this is this was the same degree of skill being applied by Mitchell Stark he's actually going to play for the Calcutta Knight Riders in the IPL and I was talking to Simon about this and he goes well maybe we'll just chuck him the old ball like you know it, it, he's become such an expert with the old old ball mm. that you, you almost it's almost at the stage where he's not needed with the new one just wait till it gets old keep him fresh and let him rip because how old does the ball get in 16 overs so. yeah it, it's amazing how quickly he gets it to reverse as well it's, yeah. it's, he's getting the ball to genuinely go after 20-25 overs which for most sides or for most bowlers it takes twice that long uh, it, it 
it's it's wonderful to watch. His nine wickets in the match earned him the man of the match gong. It also moved him up to number five in the ICC bowler rankings. That's the highest he's ever been. Uh, I think he copped a bit of grief during the Ashes Stark. He didn't really have that breakout performance. He took five wickets in... Adelaide in the second dig, but most people credited Hazelwood as being the clutch bowler in that innings. He took 22 wickets and missed a test match, so he didn't take as many as Cummins, but um, in all bar, uh, he he played one of those injured in Sydney and he missed one in Melbourne too. So it's not as though he was kind of the man who we were all talking about post-Sydney, but here he is, fantastic preparation, didn't play much of the white ball stuff, skipped the T20s, they nursed him into it, let him rip, and you know, there's the model, isn't it? You've got to get players ready to roll for the first test match of a series. They did a great job, Cricket Australia. Well, yeah, he didn't have that match in the Ashes where he stamped his name on it and said, this was was my game. Yeah, that's that's a better way of interpreting it. Remember Stark in Perth or whatever it was, Mm. but... He did have that here. He had it in Gaul a couple of years ago against yep. Sri Lanka. Even though Australia lost that match, he was just incredible on an old wearing pitch, again getting it to reverse, swinging it conventionally with the new ball and reverse with the old. So in these kind of dry, crumbly, dusty conditions like we had at Durban, he relishes that. Talking of dry, crumbly, dusty conditions, Usman Khawaja. I just don't know how to come at this. I love Uzi. I want him to play 100 test matches. I think when he's at full flight, he's just about the best player on the planet to watch committed so many thousand words writing about his batting but you know they won in Durban and, it's, and it'll be an unnamed side for Port Elizabeth you can be absolutely certain of that he wouldn't want to fail again I thought the most damning statistic about his dismissal uh, in the first innings was no second innings rather the second innings was that he's only played nine sweep shots in his whole test career in 30 test matches yet wow. he was playing a reverse sweep uh, on in single digits I can't remember what he was on exactly but you know not Six, no, by, no, by no means set by no means made, set and it know, just you just got to ask yourself if you're number three for the Australian cricket team and you're one of the most experienced players in the side in terms of professional years on the on the yep. clock should you be making it up on the go the answer is obviously captain no captain of Queensland captain of Queensland you shouldn't be making it up on the go but more to the point does it, does it indicate that against spin in particular high quality spin in foreign conditions that he's got a, a mental block and if he does then can Maharaj exploit that through the rest of the series you, yeah. you have to think he's a decent show of doing well, so well especially in Port Elizabeth where we are now where it's also known to be a bit of a slower so turning track at times and I took a photo of the track today from afar albeit but you can see quite significant footmarks on there. We're coming to the end of the South African summer, therefore um, these are tired squares. Uh, It's going to reverse because there's about 10 strips on there and they're all hacked up Mm. and they're Decent footmarks outside the leg stump for so he'll have something to aim at yep. outside the off stump for for Kawaja the left-hander so there'll be plenty of opportunity for Maharaj to penetrate again. I don't want to go too over the top on Kawaja but it's like it's a watching brief, isn't it? It looked like he was confused. I mean, admittedly they came out in the second innings 189 ahead at the beginning. Bancroft and Warner uh, added quite a few pretty quickly, mm. and then. It was maybe a matter of, was he sort of saying, okay, we need to pile on some runs. I need to find a way to score. I I can't sit here and block all day. Um, And he had a gap there, so he tried the reverse sweep. But it it wasn't necessarily a situation where they needed to come out and throw the bat and whack on a quick 100 declaration runs. Mm. They they needed to, you know, had they been resold for 150, then South Africa might have still been in that game. Instead, as it was, Australia made a fair bit over 200 and put the game out of reach. But it wasn't impossible, particularly the way South Africa batted in the second inning. So it did need some crease occupation. You know, Steve Smith was happy to bat some time out there. Everybody, no one made a big score in the Australian second innings, but 
uh, aside from Usman, I think they all tried to bat a decent bit of time. They all tried to uh, stay out there for as long as they could. It was the, it was, I think I was, was stitching it together. It was the first time in Test cricket that every partnership's between 10 and 60 in the first innings, which again suggests that. It, they're not collapsing, which has you know, been the major problem picks, in this yep. in this side. Well, Smith talks about it all the time, doesn't he? They they didn't collapse. They found a way to. I think until uh, the the last wicket in the first innings, every partnership was at least five overs. So again, if you exclude runs and just look at crease occupation, that meant that they were not losing wickets in in a spree, which can often see a bowling side ski downhill very quickly. Mm. Um, but but just you mentioned Smith before. Uh, you know, again, we're, we're really I'm I'm kind of clutching a bit here. But if there is a chink. If there is a chink in the Steve Smith armour, it looks to be against left arm spin. Purely on the numbers, he averages over 100 against all bowling types since the start of 2016. Against left arm spin, that's 21. Uh, he was out to left arm spinners in both innings of this test match. It was Maharaj who tied him down beautifully before getting him out in the first dig. Dean Elgar picked him up in the second. The second time in test cricket, Dean Elgar's got him out. He got mm-hmm. him out in, on, on 84, 84 in Cape Town four years ago. That's so right. and, and Smith knows that too. He made a point of having a bit of a laugh about that. Uh, but still, it, it, it might be something. If you're South Africa and you're bowling at Steve Smith, by far the most accomplished player in the world at the moment, you, you're going to leverage off that. You're going to see it as an opportunity. It, it, an might, it might, or it, or it might not. I I mentioned the 2016 Sri Lanka tour before. If you're South Africa looking for signs, Usman is one because he was all at sea True. on that tour. He was out twice in a day at Gaul. I think he faced about seven balls that day and was clean bowled uh, twice in that Identically seven balls. Identically yeah. Uh, yeah, well, the first one was just playing a forward defensive that missed the line and the second one was shouldering arms That's and just right. watching it crash into his yeah. stumps. Um, but on that tour, Steve Smith was out quite a lot of times to Rangana Herath as well, the, the great left armour over there. But I'd, I'd say if you look at Steve Smith's dismissals, OK, he's been out to left arm spin a lot. But what that really means is he, he's been out to Herath a lot and he's been out to Jadeja a lot True. of India. Two very high-class bowlers in their own conditions. I'm not sure how many other left armers... You know, I don't have this off the top of my head, but I would Oh, reckon, there can't be many. I would reckon Harath got him six times in that... Yeah. Um, five or six times on that test tour, and I would reckon Jadeja would have got him, what, five or six times in India, probably. Yeah, the, the bulk of the times there. It, 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 it's a fair point. We're not quite reaching Kevin Peterson yeah. levels. We're not going to see David, David Doherty receive South African citizenship in order to play the third <laughs> test match. Uh, although I would like to see them to, to, to have a, pick an extra left-arm spinner just for laughs, really, just to, yep. see, just to try it on. But or just to do a full Bangladesh and get like six of them. Maybe they can get John Holland to play. I mean, you know, in junior cricket, you can you know supplement your side with players from the other team if you're short. Maybe they can pretend they're short of players and go, hey, John, do you want to play for us, mate? Because uh-huh. i tell you what, Nathan Lyon's going nowhere. How well did he bowl in that first innings to begin with? He's just got this ability, almost, you know, like Graham Swan did, actually, at the start of his test career, of taking wickets in his first couple of overs. He took mm. two in his first five balls uh, on Friday to set his test match up. That took him equal and then passing... Uh, the great Craig McDermott on 291 uh, wickets. He's now past that 291 figure and heading quickly towards 300. Yeah, uh, and he's only got the 300 club ahead of him. It, you know, it's, it's Lee, Mitchell Johnson, Lily, Warren McGrath. That's yeah, it. Yeah, and, 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 a couple of those, and a couple of those have only got low 300, only yeah. says I, low 300s. It, yeah. it may not be that long before he's it, only Warren and, and McGrath ahead of him, which just seems remarkable considering where he was the last time these yeah. two teams met when he bowled for, oh gee, it's a horrible number. Did he bowl for 70? first class overs without a wicket whatever it was the last time Sri Lanka was sorry South Africa were in Australia he was a I mentioned it last week he was a he was a Stephen O'Keefe hamstring or 
like half twinge away from losing his spot in the Australian yeah. eleven. Yeah. Completely different uh, situation now. And, and we mentioned that Bangalore Test match before, 12 months ago. That's where it all turned around for Lyon. He's taken his wickets at an average of 22 since then. Uh, and it's easy to forget as well that going into that Bangalore Test match, he actually was Australia's second spinner. O'Keefe had taken 12 for 70 in the previous Test match at Pune. Uh, and it wasn't hard to see a situation where if they wanted to go back to one spinner, that O'Keefe could have been their choice. Instead, Lyon takes eight at Bangladesh and the rest is history. What a you know what a what a 2017 he had, yeah. and it seems to have started exactly the same again. Well, it, it seems like he's just spent so much of his career living on the edge. You know, he's mm. been he's he's had this insecurity for almost the entire time, uh, and he's only really just established himself, which seems absurd as a thing to say about someone who's sixth on the all-time Australian <laughs> no, wickets list. Crazy. How did how did that happen? How how, how was that allowed to happen? And yet uh, it has, and yet he's had this confidence, and which is you know spilling over into cockiness. And sure. I think that's what you saw with the Davilius dismissal. And so the one thing I saw that I liked from Lyon was that he he walked that back very quickly. He rang Davilius that night and apologised, and you know before he'd been charged by the ICC, he was already sort of going, "Look, I, I messed up. Um, that wasn't cool." Yeah. And and I think that's a good sign because there is you, you don't want to spill over into too much. That wasn't cockiness. That was just being daft. Like I don't, I don't link the two things together. I think that was just a, a silly thing that he did. Mm. I think he would have done it. It's definitely cockiness before uh, the Ashes uh, series when, he was, oh, when yeah, he was coming yeah. out with his big talk. He thought he had to, though, didn't he? He said this later. He thought that that was his job to play the attack dog because he was a senior player. I kind oh. of, and he did a bloody terrible job of it, didn't he? I mean, you know, <laughs> he, he's playing out of character. So I'm not, I'm not surprised. But talking of second spinners, uh, um, Steve O'Keefe took eight for against Victoria. Now I know it's a specky, but they're going to the UAE. Uh, later in the year, Steve O'Keefe's where career he debuted, isn't it? May not, may not be over. It was where he debuted in 2014 at mm. Dubai Sports City. Keep your eyes open for a bargain. Dubai Sports, Sports City. City. I miss that place. Um, oh, we'll be there later in the year for the final word, I should add. Yeah. Can't wait for that. Um, one bloke who won't be there, uh, Jeff, uh, Eddie Cowan. He's finally oh. put the cue in the rack. Um, I think that for mine, um, when he made that 100 in Brisbane in 2012, that's one of my favourite Australian cricket moments. I feel like we all went on a bit of a journey with Ed. Yeah, yeah it may sound a bit... A, a bit over the top to say that he was a different kind of Australian cricketer, but we followed him for such a long time. We were so invested in his success. We were so gutted when he was dropped and, and kind of so proud of him with the way he uh, continued to contribute for Tasmania and then New South Wales. Uh, he made over 10,000 first-class runs. He played 18 test matches, uh, and he's earning uh, wonderful, uh, a, a wonderful amount of celebration for a fine career. Yeah, I, I think he's the kind of player who was not supposed to make it in mm. an Australian team. He didn't fit the traditional cardboard cutout, and so the fact that he did, you know, the fact that he's played test matches, the fact that he has a test century, those things can't be taken away. No. Um, and I think, to be completely frank, he was treated disgracefully at the end of his test career. He was shoved out the door when he was sick he was batted out of position at Trent Bridge he was ill he had a newborn kid he was in no position to to play in one of those innings and he was just you know told to toughen up and march to the middle and it just wasn't right and then on the basis of that oh well he didn't make any runs that day therefore he was rubbish and he and he was chucked out of the team and I think that's uh, that's still a blot on the copybook of uh, some people still involved in the current administration. Yeah, he never really established himself. 18 tests on the trot, but it always felt like he was a couple of failures away yeah, from but being it was, This was after being probably Australia's best player in, in India in 
in 2013, the most consistent. Michael Clark made 100 in the first test and, and dropped away. Steve Smith came back in the third test and made a great 90 mm. there and, and got his way back into the team from there. But you know, look Ka- bit- Cowan was the one who really grafted through that series and, and uh, put in. Yeah, look, it probably didn't help that he always said what he thought. He spoke his mind, uh, and he did to the end. He, he you know, elicited, or generated rather, um, headlines uh, at the start of the season when he was left out of the Sheffield Shield team after being the player of the year for New South Wales last year. Yeah, that, that always kind of followed ludicrous, him. You know. It always followed him. They, these sorts of stories were, were part of Ed Cowan's character. Um, he was, he's a lovely writer. Uh, was involved in an excellent film about Test cricket made by Jared Kimber and mm-hmm. Sam Collins' Death of a Gentleman. Be sure to pick that up on Netflix. I'm sure most people listen to this podcast would, yep. would already have seen that but it gives you a real flavour of the sort of guy he is so and of congrats. course never forget the progenitor of that great statistic the, the Cowan Tun the Cowan Tun when, <laughs> when, when you're an opener when you're a hashtag real opener the Cowan Tun is when you face 100 balls ideally with a strike rate of 20 or below and that's a perfect Cowan so uh, and that was something that we so desperately needed as an Australian team back in 2012-2013 yep. so it, it's a sign of respect the Cowan Tun no denigration in there at all and he's had a career he should be proud of and salutations to him. Yeah, indeed. We'll continue. We'll make sure we keep using the counter for many, many years, Jeff. We're not going to let that one go. It's in the lingo. Don't, don't, uh, don't worry about that. It's absolutely embedded. This has been the final word from Port Elizabeth. Probably time to wrap things up for this episode. Before we do, be sure to uh, do us a favour and tell your mates if you've enjoyed this episode of The Final Word. Share it around. It's on all the usual podcast platforms, especially on iTunes. If you can give us a just a nice little review, uh, that would be very much appreciated. Thank you to David Squires for the artwork, Earthboy for the music, Adam Collins for putting up with me. We'll be with you after the second Test match at Port Elizabeth here in South Africa, bringing you all the action from this tour, and hopefully we'll just be talking about the cricket then. Until then, this is the final word. Sorry if I ran into empty road.